You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, We have been in a Christmas series for the last month, and I really enjoyed the Christmas series with you. Hope you did as well. And we're going to jump back now into the book of Matthew. And uh, here we, as we start a new year, I thought it would be wise uh, to kind of just look at the new year with... uh, well, the eyes of, of what Jesus has in store for us as we move forward into this new year. And so I titled the message, Unstuck, uh, Life for God's Glory. Uh, maybe you look back on 2020 and it wasn't the year you wanted. I think that would be true for a lot of people, right? I mean, who would have dreamed that we would have the coronavirus and everything else that happened? But here we have an opportunity to start fresh. And to put away 2020 and to move into 2021, uh, we get to kind of just start over. And I love that about New Year's. Uh, God is a God of new beginnings. As a matter of fact, if you look on your bulletin, you'll see uh, this is just who God is. On the front of the bulletin, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And it's great to have a fresh start, and God is a God of fresh starts. But here's the question, can we actually change? Some of us might get stuck, and being stuck is no fun. As a matter of fact, here's a little video about being stuck. Take a look at this. Well, that was amazing. Did you enjoy it? No fun being stuck. Uh, being stuck actually stinks. Uh, as a family, we like going to the river, and we have uh, sea doos and jet skis and that kind of stuff that we like to do together. And I like exploring new places, and sometimes when you go exploring new, I'd like to find a beach that nobody's on or a, you know, a riverside. And sometimes in doing that, you get what? stuck. And my wife will be in the passenger seat saying, Dave, no, don't go down that road. Don't go on that. It's, and sure enough, I'll do it. And then, you know, and when you get stuck, it's no fun. Why? Because you're stuck in a spot you don't want to be in and you're not getting to the spot you want to be in. And life is that way. We can get stuck. Maybe you feel stuck in life. It's exhausting, and it's draining, and if we were honest, it sucks the life out of us. It can even bring depression into our life. And now each of us here are facing a new year. We have an opportunity to start fresh and to get unstuck. And maybe as we are starting the new year, you're wondering, how can we keep ourselves from making the same mistakes all over again? How can we actually progress? How can we actually grow? How can we be unstuck? I think most of us have, tr- have tried New Year's resolutions before, and how well do they go? They're hard, right? They're hard. Uh, how many of you made New Year's resolutions this year, just out of curiosity? About, about the same as first service. It's like just a few of us made New Year's resolutions. And that's interesting. Uh, uh, good on you, by the way, if you made one. Uh, we've all tried making them before, and because they're difficult and because we failed, a lot of us become cynical and don't make them anymore. No more resolutions. We kind of just go on like just another day. But think about it. Any thinking mind will realize that that's probably not the best approach. To not have a goal, to not have a resolution, to not have something that you're trying to move towards. Uh, 
And starting a, the new year without godly goals or without a vision might mean that you're stuck a little bit. And it's my hope today that, to get you unstuck. And to do that, we're going to look at Peter as our case study. And we're going to see how to get unstuck. It's my goal today that you might leave with some resolutions of how to move forward in your walk with Jesus uh, for this year. And that you might actually spend some time uh, meditating and coming up with some goals and resolutions that you want to get into. So open up to, to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to pick up where we left off a month ago before we jumped into our Christmas series. We're actually going to cover some of the same ground that we left off on a month ago just to re re rekindle and get the flame going again of where we were. Um, and again, we're looking at Peter as a case study, and we're going to see how Peter gets stuck and how Jesus instructs him so that he might grow and get unstuck. And I tell you what, being unstuck is amazing. Being unstuck is when you start moving to where God would have you, and there is something awesome about it. It is then that we can experience the joy of progressing in life where God wants us to go. Lives that live to the glory of God. So uh, that's the title of the message, Unstuck, Life to the Glory of God. And uh, we'll pick up kind of uh, right where we left off. Uh, before we do, let me just set the stage. Jesus has asked a question. He said, who do men say that I am? And the disciples gave answers of who the general public was saying Jesus was. Some say you're Moses, some say you're Elijah, some say you're the prophet that was spoken of, uh, a lot of different answers, and Jesus says, okay, all good and well, but now he, I want to ask the question that I was really getting to, uh, Jesus speaking, he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That is the most important question you could ever be asked. And Peter with divine inspiration, you know, all the disciples looking at each other like, I don't want to give the wrong answer. I don't want to give the wrong answer. And they're all kind of just sitting there. And sure enough, it's Peter who speaks up, always, always does. And, uh, and he says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And I know you probably know that answer, but I want you to hear it. There's two parts to it. Number one, you're the Messiah, the promised one, the one that the prophets spoke about from the beginning of time. You're the one that uh, God has been telling us through the ages that is coming. You're him. Secondly, you're also the son of the living God. In other words, you're divine. You're God in the flesh. Both together, both super important. You're the Messiah and you're the you're God in the flesh. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, way to go, Peter. He says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. But my father in heaven. Let me give a loose paraphrase of what Jesus was saying. Way to go, Peter. That's not intellectual knowledge you have. You are learning how to hear from the Holy Spirit. You are learning how to have a spirit-led life. You are learning not how to walk according to the will of man, but according to the will of God. You are learning. You are beginning. You are walking in the spiritual realm, having God lead and guide your life. Way to go, Peter. God's going to use you. I tell you, uh, on this foundation, I will build my church. And the great news, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You build your life on that foundation. What foundation? That Jesus is the Messiah and that he's also God in the flesh. You build your life on that foundation and the gates of hell will have no, just won't prevail against you. You might go through sickness. You might go through heartache. You might go through troubles. You might go through coronavirus. But you know what will happen? You will thrive because nothing will prevail against you. 
I'm amazed how in all of this, God is growing our church and multiplying our church and marriages are getting saved and, and uh, uh, excuse me, marriages are getting healed and, and, and husbands are becoming the leaders in their family that they never were before and wives are understanding what it means to, to honor their husbands and build up their, their you know, uh, be a helpmate to their husbands and, and men are learning what it means to be builders of their family and builders of their wives and we're watching all this happen and it's marvelous to watch. We're watching leaders develop and grow. We're watching people uh, go from blindness to sight as they start understanding the things of God. It's amazing to watch and nothing the enemy can throw our way can hinder the work of Jesus Christ in his church. And we're watching it. You're experiencing it. It's amazing. And so Peter, no doubt, feeling on this mountaintop experience, oh my gosh, God's using me. I'm growing. Look what Jesus said about me. Just amazing. But it's interesting, in just three verses, just three measly verses, Peter goes from speaking with incredible spirit-led wisdom to rebuking Jesus. Take a look at this. Uh, verse 21, uh, chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders, that, that's the Sanhedrin, the group of 70 elders, and the chief priest, and the scribes, and be killed, and be raised the third day. Verse 21, from that time, from this section in the book of Matthew, Jesus is now going to be repeatedly speaking about his death and resurrection. His death is only about six or seven months away from this time, and he's going to be bringing it home frequently right now, and notice how accurate his prophecy is. He tells where it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, who's going to do it. I mean, this is... Uh, incredible detail. And he's going to rise again on the third day. Verse 22. Then Peter took him, that's Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him. Began to rebuke Jesus. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, that this shall ever happen to you. Oh, we got a problem here. If you ever find these two words existing in the same sentence, no and Lord... You got a problem. You got a problem. And Peter here says, no, Lord, not going to happen. Oh, his motives, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure there were some good there. He's going, oh, Lord, you know, I just love you so much. I'm never going to let this happen. And, but notice what Jesus says. But he, that's Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. And I want the whole church to read this next sentence out loud. Read it out loud with me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Yeah, here's the problem. Oh, we see it. What happened to Peter? What caused him to miss the mark so badly? How did he go from being spirit-led to now being a fool? How did he miss the mark so badly? Well, here's what happened. Peter got stuck in his own desires. Peter got stuck in his own desires. And if we are going to move forward in our walk with the Lord, if we are going to be free to be growing and to be uh, increasing and to receive all that Jesus has for us, we have to let go of our own desires and begin to embrace his desires. Jesus said, you're not mindful of the things of God, Peter. You're mindful of the things of the flesh. Or in other words, you're not doing thinking about God's will. You're not wanting God's will. You're wanting what? Your will. Your will. And sometimes even your will might look godly. I mean, it's not a bad thing Peter was saying. He's, you know, trying to... But it's not what God wants. And we have to be knowing God's will. He was so focused on getting what he wanted, he was stuck. Which brings us to the next point. Being mindful of God's will 
is the catalyst of our personal growth. You want to have an amazing 2021? You want to experience personal growth? Spiritual growth? You want to grow in wisdom, in knowledge, and discernment? Know this, it's God's will for your life. But in order for that to happen, we have to be mindful of God's will instead of our will. And that is a daily process. We thrive personally when we are mindful of God's will. The Bible makes it very clear. It, 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 it spares no, no words on the subject. It lets us know that our will leads to destruction. The Bible says that there's at Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but it leads to destruction or it leads to failure or it leads to broken relationships or it leads to quirky marriages that aren't in the center of God's will or it leads to a father-son, a father-daughter, a mother-daughter relationship that isn't what it should be or it leads to a business that isn't operating in the center of God's will. Being mindful of God's will will cause incredible personal growth in our life. We will thrive when we are mindful of God's will. Uh, but our will leads to destruction. And I tell you, go ahead, try it, do it your way, do marriage your way, and see how it works. Do business your way and see how it works. Do friendships your way. See how it works. Do even ministry that, for that matter, your way and see how it works. There's a way that seems right to us, but it's not right. It seemed right to Peter to say, Lord, I'll never let this happen. But it wasn't God's will and it ended horribly. We have to uh, be in God's will in order for that to happen. We will be stuck with no personal growth for 2021 unless we know the will of God. Which leads us to a question, how in the world can we know God's will? Jesus told Peter, Peter, you're not mindful. Everybody say the word mindful. Think about what it means. It's not on your mind. It's not on your tongue. It's not on your fingertips. You're not mindful of the things of God. You're mindful of the things of your flesh. And you can't get there from here. You can't grow. I can't lead you when you're not mindful of the things of God. And so how do we then Get mindful of God's will. I want to give you four basic principles, but just because they're basic doesn't mean they're not powerful. As a matter of fact, they are timeless. And we're going to cover them very quickly, so get your pencils out and write them down. They're not going to be revolutionary, but I guarantee you this, they are timeless for a reason, because they work. It's just the way it is. To be mindful of God's will, we have to look to Scripture for answers. When we are having problems, we are prone to go everywhere else. We are prone to go to Christian books. We are prone to go to uh, various places, to counselors, to magazines, to whatever. But we need to go to Scripture. God wants to reveal himself to us. God loves to reveal himself to us. God told Joshua, Joshua, this book shall not depart from your mouth. But you should meditate in it day and night that you might learn to do according to everything that is written in here. Why? Because then you will find good success and then you will find your way prosperous. That's Joshua 1.8. Uh, he goes on to say, Have not I commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. I'll be with you wherever you go if you're walking in my will. And God wants to reveal himself to us. And it's so important that we're looking to scripture for answers. Secondly, uh, not only just look to scripture for answers, 
But I would say this is even more important than number one. Look to the Bible to know Jesus personally. To know Jesus personally. You see, God is not a force. God is not a power. God is not a law. God is not a judge. He is all of those things, but he is none of those things. He is a person. He has a mind. He has a heart. He has a will. You are created in his image. You can understand his nature. He is personal. And don't go strictly to learn the formula of God. Read your Bible to learn the person of God. Big difference. His name is Jesus. And in the volume of the book, it is written of him. Everything about in the Bible reveals who he is. And we want to read our Bibles to understand his heart, to understand his mind, to understand his will. As a matter of fact, Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was. And he was asked by a, a person who had a PhD in studying God's commandments. And uh, Jesus, without hesitation, answered, you should love the Lord your God. You say, okay, well, that's good. But he didn't leave it there. He said, uh, three caveats with all your heart. That's the center of your being. And then the second one, with all your what? With all your mind. That means know him. Know what he likes. My wife knows what I like. She doesn't make me pecan pie. She makes me pumpkin pie. Because I love pumpkin pie. And I hate pecan pie. And if she made pecan pie for me, would she be loving me with her heart? Absolutely. Would she be loving me with her strength? Absolutely, but she wouldn't be loving me with what? Her mind, she doesn't know what I like. And Jesus said, love me with all your heart, and then love me with all your mind. That means studying to know him. Then you will be able to love him with your strength. Thirdly, we know God's will. We are mindful of God's will. By seeking godly counsel. Godly counsel. Not counsel. Godly counsel. And we do this through various ways. We do this by gathering corporately once a week to study God's word and to get godly counsel. We do this weekly by meeting in small groups together to discuss personal issues and what's going on in life to get godly counsel. We do this by coming to the elders of the church to get godly counsel. And we do this by having a, a single mentor in our life, a godly man, a godly woman, to get godly counsel. The world has all kinds of counsel. Uh, there are even psychologists, and there's even Christian psychologists. But just because it's a Christian a, a psychologist who's a Christian doesn't mean it's godly counsel. Biblical counsel is godly counsel. And fourthly, we spend time in prayer. In prayer. In prayer? Well, in prayer, confessing our sin. You see, how often do we sin? All the time. And prayer is one of the ways that we keep the relationship with God. We go, oh, sorry, Lord. I was focused on my will, not your will. I care about you. I love you. I know how much you love me. And Lord, I want to know you. Please forgive me and help me to walk in your way. And now, Lord, instead of doing it that way, help me to love my wife as you love the church. I don't know how to do that. I want to read your word. I want to talk to you about how I can love my wife like you. And that's what prayer is. It's just talking to God about his will. All of you have loved ones. And for Christmas, what did you ask them before Christmas came? What do you want for Christmas? That's what prayer is. Lord, what do you want? How can I do this? I got this problem at work today. How do you want me to handle that? That's prayer. Uh, Peter got stuck because he was mindful, not of God's will, but of his will. And notice what Jesus tells him. Look at verse 24. Uh, he, he, uh, he gets rebuked pretty good, right? Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And now look at the teaching Jesus goes into. Not by accident. 
Not by chance, very specific teaching. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him what? Deny himself. Not lean on his own will. Take up his cross and follow me. That means die to my will and live to his will. That's what Jesus tells them. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. You can write the word above that right there. We'll ruin it. Whoever desires to do it his way will ruin his life. You'll just ruin your life. God's not against you. He doesn't give you commandments so he can just give you these incredible hurdles to see how high you can jump. Oh, look at that, Gabriel. I got him jumping this high, man. He's really working out. No, 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 no. God gives you instruction that you might thrive. That you might thrive. And what Jesus is saying is if you do it your way, here's what's going to happen. You're going to ruin your life. And I don't want you to do that. You're going to ruin your marriage. You're going to ruin your relationship with your kids. You're going to ruin your business partners. You're going to have a business partner that you walk into the office and you can't talk to each other. You're going to have a Christmas party and people are going to come over and you go, oh, I hope they don't talk to me. You're going to ruin your life. But whoever loses his life, that means doesn't do his will, but does God's will, for my sake, will find life. He will find life in amazing ways. And here we learn something, right? We get stuck when we fail to deny our flesh to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoever tries to do it his way, well, he's going to be stuck, man. He's going to ruin his life. And it's no fun getting stuck. He who refuses to deny his flesh, he who makes his present life his chief objective, he's going to ruin his life. And without Jesus leading us, you know what happens? We get stuck. What do we get stuck in? We get stuck in greed. We get stuck in selfishness. We get stuck in addictions. We get stuck in ego. We get stuck in saying, I'm not going to apologize. They're the one who wronged me. All right. We get stuck in these base depravity. This, this. And you know what's sad about it all? It's not that we don't want good things. It's that we get stuck and we have no idea how to get good things. When we're stuck, it's not that we don't want a good marriage. It's that we don't know how to get a good marriage. Because all we know how to do is do it our way and it's not working. When we're stuck, it's not that we don't want to have a good business. It's that we just don't know how to do things without corruption. It's not that we don't want to uh, be nice. It's just we just don't know how not to be a hothead. It's not that how we don't want to. We just don't know how to not be so self-absorbed all the time. And so it hurts the different areas of our life. And we grope around in the dark looking to magazines and to different things to try to figure out how to make this work because we're stuck. And it's all because we fail to deny our flesh to follow Jesus. The opposite is also true, Jesus said. We thrive when we deny our flesh to follow Jesus. When we deny our flesh to obey Jesus, Jesus gives us life and gives us life abundantly. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'm so tired of not being able to do marriage right. I'm so tired of not having all these conflicts. I'm so tired of not having better fruit in my life. Jesus said, hey, no problem, just come to me. All you are weary and worn out and I will give you life and life abundant. You just got to make me Lord, right? You got to do things my way. Your way doesn't work. And it's amazing to watch, man. His word guides us in our relationships. His word guides us in our parenting. His word guides us in our business. Even this, his word guides us in our failures. His word guides us in our vices. His word guides us and brings light to the situation so that we're not gripped with the vice and we're able to break free and not be stuck anymore. The psalmist would experience it. And he would write such things as, Lord, your word is like a light into my feet and like a lamp into my path. I didn't know how to fix this relationship. And man, your word just illuminated the path. And now I see. 
And that's what he wants to do for us. He leads us to health. I'm amazed at how Jesus does this in my life and in your lives. I so love watching it happen on you. To take a couple and to watch them to really begin to connect and to bond. And to take a marriage of X amount of years and now bring it into a marriage that actually reflects what God designed marriage to be. Oh, man. And to watch the difference it makes in their parenting, in their hospitality, in the way they go to work in the morning, in everything. It just makes a difference and they're just walking in the center of God's will. I marvel at it. In my own life, I marvel at it. I look at what God is doing and I can relate to what the psalmist would write. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. My cup overflows. I had a few days off this week and I so enjoyed the downtime. And I turned my phone off and everything. And I was just in awe of God's abundant blessings. As I look back on the 2020 with all the pandemonium and everything. And I just thought... We're thriving in every single way, personally and in the church and individually. And I just, just amazing. And having family together so much during, you know, the Christmas and New Year season. And all my kids want to hang out with us. And, and Lisa and I, we just love being together. I actually love my wife. And even a bigger miracle, she loves me. We want to be together. I love snuggling up to her at the end of the day. I love going and doing things with her. I just love being with her. How amazing. You know why? Because I grew up in a home where I never saw any of that. I didn't want to get married. Ever. Because I never saw it. I was conceived when my parents were divorced. And my dad was already husband number two. And my mom remarried several times after that. I had men in and out of my life like a revolving door. Marriage, no thank you, please. And when I got married, I thought, I don't know how to do this. And then I got saved. And I got saved right before my firstborn, Jordan, was born 30 years ago. And I cried out to God, God, I don't know how to be a dad. I've never seen it. I've never experienced it. I don't even know what it remotely should look like. And God began to speak to me through his word. And I remember reading Ecclesiastes for the first time going, oh my gosh, there's a father I never had. There's wisdom. There... And God began to show me. And now I look back all these years later and I find what the scripture says is absolutely true. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or hope. I looked at what we have or hope. I look over this New Year's looking back on and all my kids coming and hanging out all day on New Year's Eve. Hanging out all night to bring the New Year's Eve. And I'm like, this is amazing. We love for you and he gives me a present and I open it up and there's a hat in it that says grandpa and there's my son Ryan and Lauren oh he's playing guitar my other son Nathan playing piano my daughter Mariah back on the slides putting that slide up my son Jordan sitting in the front row of church with his brand new fiance oh surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life my cup overflows and I want you to know something I'm not boasting in me there's nothing special about me I am clumsy stumbling bumbling selfish egotistical prideful arrogant lusty all the things you can imagine and I have just done one thing I have tried to know God's will and I've tried to my foolish best clumsy as I am to know it and to walk in it and it's brought light to my eyes it's brought wisdom to my soul it's given me a direction and I can honestly say Lord you're amazing your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path and it's not that I don't mess up I mess up all the time I just get right back on his track as soon as I do and this is what he has for us. We get stuck when we fail to deny our flesh, but we thrive when we deny our flesh and walk in his ways. And it's incredible. And if that were not good enough, it gets even better. On top of all of that, there are eternal ramifications to our 
walk with Jesus as well. Notice what Jesus says. Look at verse 26. After he tells Peter, Peter, don't do your will. Do my will. You'll ruin your life if you do your will. You'll thrive if you do my will. Look what he says in verse 26. He says, not only that, it's going to go into eternity as well. Look what he says. He says, what will it profit? What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I want you to think about that question. I want you to answer that question. What profit is it if you grow your business and you're now just like amazing? I mean, you're like, uh, you know, you're Zuckerberg, you're Bezos, you're Jeff Bezos. You're, I mean, what, what good is it? What good is it if you lose your own soul? What good is it? What's the answer? It's not very good. What good is it if you can't even have a wife that you enjoy being with? What good is it? What good is your mansion if you come home and you're not even, you can't even, can't even enjoy being in your own home? What good is it? What good is it if your kids don't want to be with you? What good is it? What good is it? What's the answer? It's not very good. It's not very good. What profit is it if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or, in other words, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Everyone here would say, I wouldn't give anything in exchange for my soul. But you know what's crazy? We give it away for nothing. We give it away for worthless pursuits. And here's what Jesus says. Pay attention. Verse 27. The Son of Man will come in glory, in the glory of his Father, with his angels. And when he comes, he will reward each one according to his works. What's he saying? Well, he's saying a couple of things. He's saying Jesus is coming again. And he's telling us some things about this life. This life is only a primer for the life that is to come. It's all this life is. In this life, Jesus is doing something. Do you know what he's doing? He's doing something to you in your life right now. Like it or not, sorry, you're not in control. He is. Guess what he's doing? He is proving you one way or the other. He is proving you whether you will follow his lordship or if you will make yourself lord. That is his sole purpose of your life. To give you the opportunity to prove he is proving if he is your Lord or if you are your Lord. And there are eternal rewards or consequences that go along with that. Our eternity hangs in the balances. Those who make Jesus Lord's Lord, uh, that means the boss, that means the authority, that means we do his will, not my will. Those who make Jesus Lord, rewards with Jesus. Those who make themselves Lord, separation from Jesus. He's proving us. And he's trying to tell us something here. He's saying, listen, compared to eternity, life is incredibly short. And all through scripture, the Bible is trying to get us to understand this reality. This isn't what it's all about. This is just a primer for eternity to come. And your life, the Bible says, it doesn't even say it's short. Do you know what it says it is? What you know it. What is it? A vapor. It is so short. The best thing God says I can educate you on is it's like, and then all eternity will be decided as a result. God is a romantic and you are on a date. Do you love him or do you love yourself? That's what he wants to know. Do you want to be with him in the most intimate relationship? Or do you want to be your own man, your own woman? Jesus is coming again. Look what verse 27 says. He says, listen, pay attention. Life is short. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father. Jesus is coming again in glory. And he's coming again in glory to do two things. To judge all things and to judge all people. Those who deny him, he will deny. Those who make him Lord of their life, he will reward. He makes it really clear. 
And now he takes us into this transfiguration. Take a look at this. Look what he does. Verse uh, 28. This is a fascinating passage of scripture. Uh, verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, he's talking to the disciples, there are some standing here who will not, who shall not taste death until they see the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. If you were one of the disciples, what would be the logical understanding you would have from that statement? Tell me, what, what is Jesus saying? What would, you, what would you understand from that? I tell you the truth, there are some of you here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. What would you think? Jesus coming back was imminent. It was at hand. It was happening at any time. And can I tell you something? That is exactly what... And can I tell you something? That Jesus wants you to think. Why? Because it's true and because it's right for us. Jesus clearly says when the, when the servant thought his master was delaying his coming, he slacks off and he loses. Jesus tells them this in a way to make them think he, they, he was coming back right away. Do you know why? Because he is. Our life is a vapor. It happens like that. Uh, look at chapter 17. <clears throat> now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Six days after what? Six days after what? Six days after Jesus told them, there are some of you who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Six days after that, six, by the way, is the number of what? Imperfection. Interesting. Uh, six days after that, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and leads them up to a high mountain. Uh, probably Mount Hermon. Uh, up to the north side of Israel, way on the very tip of Israel, even further north than Dan, about a 9,200 feet high mountain. From there, it's beautiful. You can overlook the Sea of Galilee and Israel. It's just a beautiful place to be. Probably that's where it was, where scholars think it was. He takes Peter, James, and John up there by themselves, verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Wow. How amazing this is. Jesus' face shining like the sun. Do you know what the Bible says about the return of Jesus Christ? It says that when he comes back, his brightness will be seven times brighter than the noonday sun. Where does the sun get its power 29 billion degrees at the core. Where does the sun get its power to generate that kind of heat 24-7? So that all the life can have photosynthesis and, and we can turn all of its energy into vitamin D and nutrients and all the things we need to get. Where does the sun get all that power? What's the answer? From God. How it works, God only knows. That's a lot of power. More than trillions of atom bombs being released every second on the sun. Where does it get that kind of power? Just one of the stars God flung into existence so that you might be warm. Just happens to be the perfect distance from the earth that you're... I do have a jacket on, but other than that, <laughs> amazing. But here's something amazing. Jesus' brightness is way brighter than that. If you looked out in the sky right now, would you be able to see the moon? No, not in daytime. Why? Because the sun is brighter than the moon. Scripture says that Jesus, when he comes back, is going to be so bright, he eclipses the sun 
right? It's like brighter than the sun. Just amazing. And here we see his face shines like the sun. His clothes become white as light. His clothes weren't white. His clothes are having light radiating out of them. They're, so, they're just so brilliant. And behold, Moses and Elijah, the law represented by Moses, the prophets represented by Elijah, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, to, to them talking with him. Very interesting. I want to talk more on the glory of Jesus and his transfiguration, but before we do, I want to bring your attention to something that you might have missed. Here we learn the extravagant grace of Jesus Christ to us. Did you see it? Did you catch it? What had just happened with Peter? Oh, Peter had just failed miserably. How miserably? Miserably enough that he rebuked Jesus. Miserably enough that he was so focused on his will, he had nothing in mind of God's will, so focused on his will that he was actually inadvertently being used as an instrument of Satan. And Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And here, after an incredible blunder, after an incredible failure, after he was, uh, you know, really blowing it, Jesus still loves Peter, still has a divine calling on his life, hasn't changed his relationship with Peter in any way, shape, or form, and he chooses Peter as one of the three who he calls to see and to experience the transfiguration. Why did Jesus only choose three disciples instead of all of them to see it? I don't know, but I present to you one idea. It could be to emphasize the extra grace that he has and that he's showing to Peter. I'm only going to take three guys and I'm going to take the biggest screw up as one of them. <laughs> Amazing. The extravagant grace of Jesus. It's huge. Wouldn't you have loved to see the transfiguration? Oh my gosh. And what does that mean for us? Well, here's what it means. As Christians, we sin. And we sin huge. We sin big. We sin maximized. We sin gloriously, right? We blow it. We fail. But we must not get stuck in our sin. And we must not let our sin hinder us from moving forward with Jesus. The enemy would love to come and condemn us. And, and he does so. Can you imagine how he's putting the screws to Peter for those six days? Jesus called you Satan. You know how selfish your thoughts are. You know how wicked you really are, Peter. You know what a loser you really are. Oh, anybody ever experienced any of this? Oh, I know you do. The enemy loves to condemn us. You got drunk on New Year's Eve? And you call yourself a Christian? You're such a loser. You're done. You can't serve Jesus now. You can't share the gospel with others. You had premarital sex? What a hypocrite you are. You can't come to Jesus now. You looked at pornography? You watched that movie? You cheated? You lied? You stole? You... And on and on and on I could go. And all of us would do it. All of us do do it. All of us sin and sin miserably. And Satan would love to keep Peter from serving Jesus. Uh, hey, you can't serve Jesus now. Why don't you just go back to your fishing business? Why don't you just quit? You'll never be a disciple. You'll never be a godly guy. Why don't you just go fishing? You can be a believer in Jesus, but just don't be a disciple. Don't be a follower. Don't be a leader. Don't be a pastor. Don't be, just go do your thing and sin, Peter, because you don't have what it takes. And Jesus says, not the case at all. Peter, come up here. I want to show you my glory like you've never seen it. 
I want to reveal to you who I am like you've never seen before. But Lord, I'm a sinner. Absolutely. You're ready now. Come with me. I want to show you my glory. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. This is, don't let your sin keep you from Jesus. Don't get stuck on the sidelines watching others serve Jesus while you rot in your guilt because you know you're a sinner. Don't do it. You are forgiven in Jesus and you are unstuck in Jesus. Now get back to serving him. I wonder how many here, how many Christians here at the Mission Church is the enemy lying to? Is the enemy saying, hey, it's fine, be a believer and all, but you can't serve Jesus because of your struggle with sin. I want to know, I want you to know nothing could be further from the truth. And I present to you something just the opposite. Serve Jesus with all your heart and you know what will happen? You won't be as attracted to sin as you are now. Just serve him with all your heart. His grace is sufficient. And here we see how extravagant, extravagant it is as we look at Peter's life. Peter, after rebuking Satan, gets called up to the greatest privilege of being seeing Jesus in all his glory. Now I know in saying there's these things, there is a danger, there are some who will say, wow, well this is amazing, now I have a license to sin. And all I can tell you is, your condemnation is just. That's a different subject, that's a different time, it's not what we're talking about here. But for those of you who want to walk with Jesus, but you're stuck by your sin, you're stuck by your lust, you're stuck by, hey, don't let that hinder you from moving forward with Jesus, from letting him bring you into the fullness of his glory. I want to tell you, do not frustrate the grace of Jesus Christ. Do not settle for anything less than to experience and to walk in and to enjoy and to fulfill his calling on your life to be an instrument in his hands. Life is so rewarding when that happens. Oh my gosh. There's a verse that I would like to bring you to. It's in Galatians chapter 2. And I'm purposely bringing it to you from the King James Version. And uh, I want you to read just this first uh, half a sentence for me. Read it out loud. Let's read it together. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. And he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Stop there for a moment. What is the verb Paul uses? What doesn't he do? He doesn't what? Frustrate God's grace. How can you frustrate God's grace? How can you, what does it mean to frustrate God's grace? Let me hear from you. What does it mean? To not receive it. The only way you can frustrate God's grace is to not receive it. It would be like this. Let's say that my daughter did something wrong against me, hurt my feelings, did something, you know, I don't know, something. Um, and... Uh, she comes over and says, Dad, I'm really sorry. And I say, baby, no big deal. You're forgiven. Do you want to go to lunch? My treat. Oh, no, Dad. I can't go to lunch with you. Not after what I just did. Baby, seriously, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. You're forgiven. Let's go to lunch. Let's go have fun. No, I can't. I can't. Let me be a good daughter for a few weeks and then maybe we'll go to lunch. What is she doing to me? She's frustrating my grace. And Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Why? Because I'm a sinner and he's my savior. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if our righteousness comes by the law, comes by obeying the law, then Jesus died in vain. And may we not frustrate the grace of God. May we know he's our savior. We're the sinners. And he's 
we're just bringing our, you know, we bring our issues to him and he cleanses us up. And uh, again, the incredible liberty of the children of God. So let's look at uh, Jesus' glorious uh, transformation. Hey, hold on to this, man. This is the way to be unstuck. If you try to frustrate God's grace, you will be stuck in moving forward. But if you receive it freely, you will be so in awe of his love that you will be gracious to others and being nice to people won't be a problem. You try to earn it yourself and you'll be a jerk to everybody because you're trying so hard to earn it yourself. We, he, we get changed from the inside when we bathe in his grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And when we receive that love, it transforms us from the inside out. That's what he wants to do. So let's look at Jesus' glorious transfiguration. His radiant glory, man, the face shining like the sun, his clothes brilliant as light, uh, radiating, just light radiating out of them. And you know what? He said, Jesus said, some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And this is fulfilled right here. How many days later? Six days later, six is the number of imperfection. This isn't the fullness of Christ's coming. It's simply a preview showing them what is to come. This is what all the world will see when he comes and how marvelous it is. And here Jesus, Jesus in all his glory, uh, just amazing. I would have loved to have seen it. But can I share with you something? Do you know what the greater miracle was than this, the transfiguration? You know what the greater miracle was? The greater miracle was that Jesus didn't look like this every single day. He was God. And God dwells, the scripture tells us, in unapproachable light. His coming will overshadow the sun. It'll be so. How did he not look like this every single day? Here's how the theological term, it's called the kenosis of God. Kenosis, a Greek word, comes from uh, um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, he says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ, who even though he can, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, in other words, it was no big deal to be called equal with God, he was equal with God, he was God. He can, uh, uh, took on, uh, I'm drawing a blank, I'm sorry. Even though he considered robbery to be equal, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, he emptied himself. I can't think of the... I blew it. I'm sorry. I had it first service, if that's any consolation. Uh, but anyway, he emptied himself. He humbled himself and became the form of a servant, even a bondservant. And that word, uh, humbled himself, emptied himself, is the word in the Greek kenosis. It's the self-emptying of God. He did not empty himself of his divinity. He was fully God. But he emptied himself of his glory. Why? So that he could meet you where you are. So that you wouldn't be so enamored with his radiant glory that you chose him selfishly just because you wanted his riches. Instead, he showed you his person and says, do you want me now? He revealed the person of God. He also did it, emptied himself so that he could take our sin upon his back so that we could be forgiven and set free and be unstuck and be clothed with his righteousness. The kenosis, the emptying of God. And that emptying did not come easy. He experienced cold just like you experience cold. He experienced getting tired just like you experience it. He experienced being hungry. All the things uh, uh, tempted in all manner as we are and yet without sin. And so how amazing uh, uh, the glorious transformation. Uh, God's divinity. Uh, I should let me say it differently. The glory of God's divinity veiled in humanity and uh, all for the sake of reaching us where we are. Um, I want to close really fast with five things the transfiguration reveals Jesus transfiguration reveals to us uh, real fast if you give me five minutes we'll wrap up 
I'm going to ask Kyle and the team to come up. Uh, five things the transfiguration of Jesus reveals to us. Number one, it reveals to us the supremacy of Jesus over the law and the prophets. Jesus was there with Moses and Elijah, representing Moses, representing all of the law, Elijah representing all of the prophets. And uh, Luke's gospel tells us something interesting. It says that they were talking about, Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his death and resurrection. And the Greek word that it uses about his death, they were talking to Jesus about his exodus and his resurrection. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was showing uh, that, uh, that he far surpasses in glory, in authority, and in power the law and the prophets. Everything in the law and the prophets was given to point us to Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection and his glorious kingdom. I can imagine what they were talking about as they were talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. Moses must be there going, Jesus, the Passover lamb. You're the greater Passover lamb. The Passover lamb in Egypt that allowed the angel of death to pass over so that the children of Israel could be set free from the bondage of sin in Egypt and be set free to go into the promised land. Jesus, all of that was just speaking of you. You are the Passover lamb. I can imagine him talking to Moses about, oh, Moses, you couldn't bring the people into the promised land, but Joshua brought the people into the promised land. Moses couldn't do it. Why? Because Moses represented the law. And by keeping the law, by trying to obey the law, you will never make it into the promised land. But Joshua can bring them into the promised land. And Joshua, his name means Jehovah, Yahweh is salvation. In Greek, it's Jesus. Jesus can take us into the promised land where the law can't. Jesus, you were the one. You, Joshua was just a foreshadow of you. And on and on, Joseph being rejected by his brothers, being despised by his brothers, being sold by his brothers for a few pieces of silver, and being sold as a slave, and going into Egypt, and, and then rising up out of the ashes to become the leader, to become the king of the entire world. And then his brothers coming back years later, not recognizing him in all his kingly garb, and not even knowing that that was their brother until Joseph chose to reveal himself to them. All of that, a picture of Israel and Jesus, not even knowing he's the king of kings. And, Jesus, and Moses would say, wow, Jesus, what you're going to accomplish in just a few days in Jerusalem is a picture of everything written in the Bible. In the volume of the book, it is all about you. Just amazing on and on and on we could go we could talk about David and Goliath and how David all of Israel's armies trembling at the feet of one enemy that none of them could slay none of them could have victory over and he's taunting them day and night bringing them in torment and one a small boy comes up his name is David and he destroys the giant of sin that no one could destroy and what does he do after he destroys he gives the victory to all those who are trembling in fear who are unable to go against that giant David is just a picture of the greater David Jesus Christ and on and on we could go talking about the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the bronze laver and on and on we could go all of it they're talking about Jesus it was all you all pointing to you Jesus transferred Figuration reveals the supremacy of Jesus. There are those who say Jesus was a great teacher. Oh, Jesus was a prophet. No, no, no. The transfiguration reveals he is way more than that. Secondly, uh, the transfiguration reveals the immort immortality of the human soul. Life is not over at physical death. 
Elijah, he left the earth at 800 BC. Moses, he died at 1400 BC. And here they are, talking with Jesus, both of them still very much alive. And here, the transfiguration of Jesus reveals the immortality of the human soul. You are going to live forever. Here we see the consciousness of the departed as Moses and Elijah are reasoning with Jesus and remembering all things and bringing them before him as they are uh, just, you know, working with him as they're ministering to Jesus in eternity. Just amazing. Thirdly, the transfiguration of Jesus reveals the certainty of the physical resurrection. The certainty of the physical resurrection. Moses and Elijah are there. They're not spirits. They're living beings. They're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Physical beings. You too are going to have a glorified resurrected body. Fourthly, the transfiguration reveals the reality of God's eternal kingdom. A kingdom that is separate from the earth and yet simultaneously happening at the same time. Two kingdoms going on at the same time. The reality of God's eternal kingdom. And lastly, the existence of eternal rewards given to each person. Jesus' transfiguration reveals that there's individual, <coughs> excuse me, individual rewards given to each person as Moses has his rewards for all eternity, as Elijah has his rewards for all eternity, and will be using them to the service of God's kingdom throughout all eternity. Jesus is amazing. May we be in awe of him. Shall we stand together? And as we enter this new year, may our hearts, may our minds, and may our eyes be filled with godly vision. I encourage you, set some goals. Not what you want, but what God wants for you in this coming year. Not your will, but His will. That you might not be stuck, but instead, moving to the glorious liberty of the children of God. Clothed in grace, abounding in grace, and moving forward in greater intimacy with Jesus than ever before. What a great year we have in store for us. Amen? May we walk in the fullness of it, and may we do it to the glory of Jesus. Let's go out and song. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.